We are continuing our series in Acts. We are going to Acts chapter 2. The other thing, before we jump into the text, as you're, as you're kind of turning there, I want to take a moment, and, and I want to remember, and I want to pray. Obviously, we've had some very, very heavy and heartbreaking things happen this, this week. I don't think I'm probably sharing anything that you haven't already heard. Um, on Friday, there were devastating terrorist attacks in Paris um, that um, were horrific and echoed in many ways to us personally, our own memory of, of our own vulnerability and, and, and our own suffering um, nationally and, and personally. Um, ISIS attacked a number of sites in Paris. It was car- carried out by three coordinated teams of gunmen and men with explosives strapped uh, to their chest. Um, there were 352 people injured, 99 critically in an attack that left 129 dead. Uh, Devastating by all accounts. Um, And our hearts go out to uh, a people in a very distant land. They speak a different language and um, have similar but different culture. But we, we identify with them and we mourn with them. You may not have heard that those weren't the only attacks last week. Thursday, the day before the attacks in Paris, there was a suicide uh, bomber who attacked men, women, and children in Beirut, Lebanon. 43 people were killed. 239 people were wounded. You may not have heard about the suicide bomber on Thursday who attacked a funeral procession in Baghdad that killed 17 people and wounded 33 more. There's a lot of brokenness in this world. There's an unending stream of news like this. And what's interesting is that we reflect on the brokenness of the world that it often reflects brokenness in ourselves, brokenness in our culture that we don't notice because we've come so used to it. For example, some people are asking, and rightfully so, why so many have heard about the one attack in Paris but not the other attacks in Beirut and Baghdad. And some would answer, well, there there was a higher death toll in Paris, and, and so it was more newsworthy, which is a really weird way to put that. But the other two attacks actually happened before. And I didn't hear about those attacks until after. See, I don't think it's about numbers. In January of this year, of this year, 2,000 people were killed in a terrorist attack in Nigeria when Boko Haram went on a two-day killing spree. 2,000 people. It was one of the largest terrorist attacks in modern history. And it went largely unreported. But that same week, 17 people were killed at the Charlie Hebdo offices and in a supermarket in France. You probably remember that. It made a lot of news. There were a lot of things going on. The attack in France produced 50 times more articles 
news articles than the Nigerian massacre. That's a statistic. That is a fact. I have a point here. I'm going to draw it out a little bit later in the message. But what I want to do right now is just pause and let's look at the brokenness of the world around us. And let's let the sadness in. The sadness of people acting inhumanely to people, people created in the image of God, slaughtering other people made in the image of God, and our own indifference toward their pain. I want to pause and consider those that are suffering in France. Husbands who have lost their wives, wives that have lost their husbands, parents that have lost their children, and children who have lost their parents, friends that have lost their dear friends that are dealing now with the loss of security and the terror that comes with feeling vulnerable and exposed. I want to pray for those that are in Beirut and in Baghdad. And I want to pray for those that are suffering everywhere where man's inhumanity to man is producing pain. So let's pause and let's pray. Father, when we consider the scope of brokenness in this world, it is overwhelming. When we see and experience the pain of loss, when our hearts aren't numbed by our distractions, when we aren't tuned out by our small miseries. The greater misery comes in, and it is overwhelming, and it is crushing. Father, it often feels that we are floating on an overwhelming sea of sadness that if we were to truly dip our toes into that water, it would simply swallow us and crush us. And we come to you for comfort. And we come to you to bring comfort to those that are currently hurting and feeling the ragged, raw edge of that brokenness in Paris in Beirut, in Baghdad, in Nigeria, and all over the world where people are suffering and hurting. Awaken a need for you, Lord. Awaken within them an appetite for your love and your redemption and your restoration, and then open the doors for your servants to bring the message and the presence of your redemptive love to them. Father, we pray, as Jesus told us to, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 2. 
Let's take a look at our text. It's kind of a crazy one this morning. All right, Acts chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, they being all the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome. I'm sorry, I laugh. It's so specific. Luke is really being careful here. He wants us to know exactly where they're from. And it is amazing. All right, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabians, we hear them telling us in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying they are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. All right, so I want to start this morning um, with a video. I'm going to, I'm going to show you a video, and, and, the, and, and it's a really cool video from a new company called The Bible Project, and I'm really excited about the stuff they're producing and what they're doing. Um, this video is answering the question, do I go to heaven when I die? That, that's not the topic of our sermon today. That's not what I'm digging into, and you're like, well, then why are you showing the video? Because it opens up some themes that I think are important to our discussion of this text. And, and I'm going to tie all that in as we continue to move through. But, but for now, I just want you to watch the video. So let's go ahead and show it. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature. But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about 
temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space To be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die. But that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed 
creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So this video is a different way of looking at um, the six acts of human history that we have spent quite a bit of time talking about over the last couple of months. I'm hoping it's becoming really familiar to you to the point that you can actually sketch it out on a napkin and the little symbols, um, napkin theology, so you can have a conversation with people. Why? Because it's really important for us to know how we fit into the story, right? This is not just the, the plot line of the Bible. This is the plot line of human history, and it makes sense of our lives, right? And in those six um, stages, we see, of course, creation, where we are created in the image of God, and, and we are designed to exist in the shalom of God, which is a, a Hebrew word that means a flourishing and a fullness and a balance and a, and a life and the fullness of life, right? And everything in creation made a glorious hum, and each had its own unique note, but they were all tuned to the glory of God. And as a result, in that time, everything was moving in the same direction, and there was a flourishing and a health, right, until mankind rebelled against God. And said to God, you're not going to be the tuning fork of our hearts. We will tune ourselves to our own glory, right? We will tune ourselves to our own passions and we will be our own God. And that plunged the created order into uh, the loss of shalom, the, the brokenness of all relationships, our relationships with ourselves and with each other and with the created order and, and of course, with God himself. And that led to a season of promise in which God basically promised, I'm not going to leave you in this state. I'm not going to abandon you in your rebellion. I will send a savior hero. I will send one who will break into the human story to redeem it and tell it as a story of victory instead of defeat. And of course, Jesus is the one who breaks into the human story to do that. He becomes God in the flesh. He, he um, uh, is the embodiment of the righteousness of God. He lives the life we should have lived. And then as our substitute dies the death, we deserve to die. He took our place in judgment and then rose again so that we could join him in his victory and join him in his righteousness. So he, he redeems us from our guilt and shame by taking it and then delivers us into his righteousness um, by combining us or bringing us into his resurrection. And that brings us into the, the sixth chapter, or excuse me, the, um, the fifth chapter, which is the church, right? This age of sending in which we live. Bet- we live between the, the redemption and the restoration of all things. That final chapter is coming when, when Jesus will return and, and all of creation will once again uh, be marked by the glorious hum of being tuned to the glory of God. There will be, again, a universal flourishing to the created order because, once again, God will be on the throne and and His glory will be at the center and we will live in the outpouring of the good of that shalom. But we live in the age between here and there, in the the tension of the already already won but not yet realized um, work of God. And so, as we move forward, um, I want you to keep in mind the purple space from that video. I, I, one of the reasons I showed it is visual images tend to stick. And that purple space is a kind of a graphic illustration where God's realm and our realm overlapped, right? That, that ultimately our sins separated the realm of God and the realm of man. And, and God is working to ultimately bring the shalom back to see the kingdom of God once again united with the kingdom of man. So we're going to be coming back to that. But first, I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking the text. Okay, and I want you to see where we're going with this and see if we can understand this crazy stuff a little bit. So take your Bibles and let's again look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, because that's where the crazy stuff's at. 
uh, and unpack and see if we can understand this. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, this is a, a huge festival. There are Jews um, coming to Jerusalem to worship from, from all over the known world at that time uh, because there was only one place to worship. There was only one temple to worship at, and that was in Jerusalem. And so they were all coming in, and, and so the city is filled, and, and, and they're in the upper room together in the middle of the city. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, we don't know if this sound filled the city. We don't know if it was audible uh, outside of this space, but it was definitely audible in the space itself. Now, the Spirit of God is often associated with wind, not, not because he is wind, but because he's like wind. You can't see him, but you can see the effects of his presence. And so what's happening is when you have this mighty rushing sound, it's basically the Spirit saying, I'm here. (laughs) something important is getting ready to happen, right? Normally you wouldn't know I was present, but I'm, I'm making myself known to your senses. And in fact, he goes on, it's not just, um, uh, auditory, it's visual, right? Verse three and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Um, these are divided tongues as of fire. It doesn't mean it's actual, their heads aren't on fire. Um, but there's a light, Right? So it's not only that you hear the Spirit of God, but you see this play of light over each individual. And, and what that shows is that the Spirit is not only here, but He's personally present in each person. That, that He has now inhabited them. In the Old Testament, um, when God revealed Himself to the nation of Israel, it was usually as a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire. It indicated the holiness and the presence of God. And what this means here is we, we hear the sound and we see the, the image of fire as a sense that, that God is now present, not just with them, but in them. That the gift of the Holy Spirit that we looked at in chapter 1 is now present. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak in other tongues. This is kind of a crazy passage, and it has created a, quite a bit of confusion in the church. I mean, the reality is there are some churches that run from this, and there are some churches that run toward this, <laughs> right? Um, there, when I became a believer, I, beca- I became a believer in a church that was running from this, right? We were the frozen chosen. We were definitely afraid of the idea of the Spirit of God actually showing up and doing things. We knew this chapter was there, but we didn't spend a lot of time reading it. And we definitely didn't talk about it a whole lot, right? We believed firmly in the Father, the Son, and the, and the Holy Scriptures. Um, and, and, and we knew the Spirit of God existed and that He was active and present, uh, but we liked Him just to stay on the down low, right? Um, in fact, we debated in that church whether or not you could even have um, a guitar accompany worship. Why? Because people might start moving, and if they start moving, they might lift their hands, and if they lift their hands, they might speak, start speaking in tongues. And if they speak in tongues, who knows what's going to happen next, right? There's dominoes that fall, and so you, you set up protections against it, right? So it be, it's like terrifying for people that, that um, feel like that, that this is alien to them. Now, there are other churches that run toward this. Honestly, they read this, and they're like, that should be the normative experience of the church. Every Sunday, the Spirit of God should fall like fire, right? And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, and, 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 and we come, and, 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 and it's usually some sort of kind of weird, like, progressive ritual where, where first we treat the Holy Spirit as if you were some shy kid that was afraid of coming out from the darkness into the light, kind of hiding around the corner. Spirit, come and join us. We want you here. We want to see you. We want your presence until the preacher declares that the anointing has fallen, and then 
it all breaks loose, right? From that point forward, he's not shy anymore. Now it's like, I'm going to swing my jacket and you're going to fall down and start barking like a dog. Um, all real, right? Some of you come from that background, right? I'm, I get it. I get it. I get it. What they're saying, though, is that this is normative, that this, this crazy stuff of Acts 2 should be the normative experience every time the church gathers. Well, who's right? It's here. I'm going to propose that neither one is. Surprise, surprise. Um, I think we kind of missed the point of the passage. In order to get the passage, I think we really need to understand its context. And one of the most important things we need to understand is this gift of tongues um, in the passage. Often in modern charismatic circles, the gift of tongues is associated with a personal prayer language. Um, and I'm not denying that that, that could exist. Uh, Paul does talk about a personal prayer language in, to the Corinthians. Um, now it's in the form of rebuke because they were trying to, to take that personal prayer language and use it in a public way. But that's not what's going on here. This is not a personal prayer language. The word tongues, glossa, the Greek word literally means languages. It is a gift of foreign languages. Like they continue to think like normal, but they begin to speak in a language they've never learned. Now, I don't know if they thought in that foreign language too. Like, like you know, you, I think in English, that's, that's what I know. I know a little bit of this language and a little bit of that language, but I have to like get to it through English. You know what I'm saying? You know somebody's really bilingual and they can think in either language, right? Um, or trilingual. Those people are like incredibly smart, right? But these guys didn't even work at it. Like miraculously, bam, they are communicating fluently in foreign languages. And that's what we see going on in the next couple of verses, right? In verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews because of the, 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 the festival. There were, there were many, many thousands of visitors in the city for Pentecost, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitudes came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, in his own tongue. That's the same word. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these speaking Galileans, which is interesting. Um, Galileans were like the southerners of the Jewish realm. Um, It was like they were from Mississippi. Somebody who's from Mississippi can't pretend they're from California. You just can't. Um, the way you pronounce vowels is so distinctive. And, and, um, and so the Galileans were like that. They couldn't hide their, their accent. They couldn't hide, you know, they just, the alls would come out. Right. And, and so like when Peter was trying to hide in the courtyard, when Jesus was on trial and the slave girl was like, aren't you one of the Galileans? And he's like, no, y'all. Right. He couldn't, he just couldn't, he couldn't hide it. Right. Because it came out. But what's amazing is that they're speaking other languages, but they're doing it so fluently that they're like, holy cow, these people are from Galilee even. And I hear them in my own language. How is it that we hear each one in our native tongue? So they're speaking in foreign languages so that they can communicate the message of the cross to people who hadn't heard it. They are um, empowered in the joy of the Holy Spirit to move forward. And I don't know whether they knew they were speaking a foreign language. It doesn't tell us, right? Like, like in some ways, like they didn't pray for the gift of tongues. They weren't like, um, you know, again, sometimes in modern charismatic circles, those who speak in tongues are kind of like the varsity Christians and those that don't are the JV Christians. And so everybody's supposed to work at it. And I don't see any of that going on here. These guys are sitting there waiting and praying and all of a sudden, bam, the spirit 
miraculously says, you're going to speak in a foreign tongue. And I'm not sure they were even aware of it. They were just motivated by the joy that was in filling them. They, they were motivated by what was happening. And they moved out into the streets, simply telling people about this Jesus that was changing their lives, that had just been raised from the dead, that had just been lifted into heaven, this kingdom that was breaking in. But as they did it, God supernaturally equipped them to do it in ways that could be understood. It wasn't their talent on display for God. It was God's talent on display for the good of the people to whom they spoke. So why is that important? We get it. Why is that important? How does that help us understand the context and even the broader context of the story, right? To to get that, we need to take a look at a passage in Genesis chapter 11. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to turn there. So grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's going to be on page 8, all the way at the beginning. Not quite the beginning, but near it. Page 8, Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at a passage um, that is often just goes by the title of the Tower of, of Babel. Okay. Now the setting for this, right at the beginning of the story, this is um, after the rebellion after creation, after rebellion, in fact, after the flood, the, one of the early stories of the Bible. Um, and the people now are moving um, in one big group, right? They're all moving together and, and, and generations and generations. They're all staying together and they're moving together as one big group. And they share a single common language, right? That's how they communicate. So then we get to Genesis 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole land. All right. So what they're describing here is actually the building of a ziggurat. A ziggurat was an, an ancient structure that was built from brick, and bitumen was the, the, the mortar that they would use. And it was a multi-layered um, uh, construct in which people could live. It was like a city. Um, but its top layer, the very peak, was a temple. So they, they thought the higher it got, the holier it got. And, and so at the very top of it, they would build um, some sort of temple. Now, what's interesting is... Um, the text tells us who they're building the temple to. Did you notice that? In, um, in verse, uh, what is that, f- 4? Uh, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. They're actually building a temple to themselves. Right? This is right after the rebellion when they looked to God and they said, we're not going to center ourselves on your glory. We're going to live for our glory. We're not going to live in obedience to you. We're going to live in obedience to our appetites and desires. We will be like God. And here they are saying, okay, let's build a temple to our God. Us. Um, not surprisingly, God has a response. Uh, take a look at verse 6. And the Lord said, behold... Or excuse me, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I love that. It's a little bit hard to pick up sometimes when you're reading ancient texts, but it's okay. There really is sarcasm in the Bible. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and this is not the only place. I could point it out. God's a humorous God, and there are points at which God will point out the irony of the situation, right? These people are building a tower to the heavens on top of which will be a temple to their own name and glory. And God's like, what's that down there? Let's go down and look. Oh, look, isn't that cute? There's a tower. He had to come down to see it. <laughs> their monumental uh, accomplishment um, was anything but. And, and so God comes down uh, and, and looks. And in verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll be able to do, and nothing that they purpose will now be impossible for them. I can't help but hear a little bit of sarcasm in that as well. Um, God knows as well, well, better than anyone, the limitations of humanity. Um, he's not being threatened by them. Um, verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So God judges them. And the judgment is this. He doesn't show up and destroy the ziggurat. He didn't come and kick the top off the top of the temple. Take that. He comes down and gives them different languages, right? All of a sudden, like that, they're all thinking and communicating in different languages. Now, that probably happened according to family groups, be my guess. So this family group started suddenly speaking this language, and this family group started speaking that language, and they're all working together, but suddenly they can't communicate. They're like, hey, will you pass me the brick? And the other guy hears, blah, <laughs> And he's like, what are you talking about? Pass me the brick. And so pretty soon they look over and, and I just asked him for a brick. And he's like, you're right. You just asked him for a brick. What? So it, it increases hostility. See, by, by, by diversifying their, their languages, he actually increased the effects of their rebellion. One of the effects of their rebellion was the loss of shalom, the loss of peace between man and man. And by introducing different languages, it actually produced a conflict, a tension. Because we know how central language is to identity. We know how central language is to self-worth and self-identity. They suddenly started pulling together with people who spoke like them and thought like them. And they scattered across the face of the earth. Ironically, they were trying to disobey God by not scattering. God said in Genesis 1, I want you to multiply and fill the earth. They were basically saying, we're not going to do that. We're all going to stay together and build this temple to our glory. And God's like, no, I'm going to confuse your language. And by the way, when I do, you're going to actually obey me. You will scatter and fill the earth. So they did. And they moved out from their speaking different languages. Therefore, um, the name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Um, by confusing their language, he increased the effects of their rebellion, the loss of shalom, and he pushed them out to spread over the whole world. So they did what he had commanded them to do. So this is what I want you to realize. God splintered human culture. That's what he did. They had a single culture defined by a single language. And God said, I am going to splinter human culture. I'm going to give you different languages that will lead to different identities and different cultures. He knew what would come from that, right? Wars. Suffering. Injustice. 
pain, violence, mistrust, xenophobia, racism. God knew when he splintered human culture that it would increase pain. Then why did he do it? Was God so threatened by our potential that he had to push us into disorder? Was God so scared of that ziggurat that it was approaching his realm in heaven? No. You guys, listen to me. He did it not because he was threatened, but because we were. He did it to protect us from ourselves. You guys, think about the brokenness of our world right now. A lot of people think the brokenness of the world could be fixed. If we could just have one religion, if we could just stop talking about how we're different, if we could just have one language, one religion, one common set of values, if we could just talk about what we have in common instead of what we have apart, we could reduce the suffering of this world. And there's a huge cultural push in that direction. Let's not focus on what divides us. Let's not talk about what separates us because if we could somehow create a single world culture, in which we all shared the same values and spoke the same language, we could fix ourselves. If we could just get together and build a city together with our values at the center, in a sense, a temple to our own new humanity, we'd be all good. All this hate, all this misunderstanding would be gone. And it's just not true. The problem in this world doesn't come from our differences. It comes from our broken hearts. The differences are just where our brokenness displays itself. The problem is the brokenness and the innate sinfulness of our hearts. And we know that, you guys. Think about your history for a minute. Can you name a single culture a single culture, that when it got big enough, when it got powerful enough, it provided universal flourishing for all of its citizens. Can you think of a single culture that when it got all the power it wanted or it could get, didn't abuse that power? You can't. See, that's because human culture is a glorious ruin. It's glorious because it was a gift from God and it reflects the character of God. And there is an aspect of human culture that is beautiful. And when peace exists and resources are abundant, we see advances in human culture that are beautiful, advances in science and and in art and in learning and in many other beautiful things. But the greatest and most glorious cultures mankind has ever built all have an inglorious underbelly of suffering, of pain, of marginalization, of abuse. There's peace that exists in those cultures when resources are abundant. And peace is present. 
but we also see abhorrent abuses. See, when we see the glory magnified, we also see the magnification of evil. Take our own nation, for example. I love our nation. I am very thankful that I've been born in America, and I love America. I love much of what we do and what we stand for. I love the fact that I've been born here and I've been able to raise my family here. I, I, there are many, many privileges that have come to me, not, not because I've earned them, but simply because I've been born here. And I am thankful for those things. But my personal experience in America is not the only American experience. There are others who are born in my same culture who have fundamentally different experiences of this culture because they weren't born with my privileges. Whether it was social or economic or racial, their experience is different in the same nation at the same time. Let me ask you just a simple question. Why do we as Americans or as a Western culture spend more time focusing on the suffering of people who look like us than people who don't? Why do we give 50 times the news coverage to the suffering of people to whom we relate in culture and in race and in the color of our skin than we do to people that are from different cultures, have different colors of their skin, Because in every culture, there are two experiences, at least. There's the experience of the people who have power, and there's another experience of the people who don't. The people who have privilege, and the people who pay the price of that privilege. And if you're in the privileged party, it's very easy to become incredibly short-sighted and think your experience is the only experience. And you can become very resentful of people who challenge you to see life in a different way. And in fact, some of you may be uh, burning up a little bit inside just because of the direction the sermon's going right now. I didn't come to church to hear about race. I didn't come to church to hear about social inequalities. I came to church to have my tank filled so I can make it, my, make it through another week. If we don't address this, who will? If the church can't have this conversation, who can? In every nation, there are those who have power and those who don't. And if you're in the power party, maybe you can make it through life with minimal suffering. But if you're not in the power party, suffering is an inevitable part of your human experience. What about in every culture, the outcasts? What about in every culture, the powerless? What about the despised and the rejected? By the way, if you ever read scripture, what you'll find is that God has a lot to say about those people. And it's all positive. God takes up the plight of the powerless. God cares for the fatherless and the widows, those without protection, economic and social. God cares for the marginalized and the hurt. We see Jesus working his way through life. He offends those who sit in the seat of power. And he cares. And he loves. And he touches the people without. And it's not that he wouldn't for the people in power, but the people in power won't come to him where he is. They want him to come to them where they are. They don't want to step out of the seat of their power. They don't want to leave their experience of privilege in order to experience grace because they don't think they need it. 
Every culture is a glorious ruin. Every culture will seek to protect the interests of some at the expense of others. And it happens again and again and again and again. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at ancient Ethiopia or Rome or the glorious age of the British Empire or modern America. People accrue power and they use it to advance themselves at the the expense of others. Listen to me, you guys. I want to make it clear. This is not a racial problem. It isn't a religious problem. It isn't a wealth problem. Those are places where the brokenness manifests itself. Those are the places where we see it erupting in in, in pain and disruption. But at the heart of it is a human problem. It is a sin problem. If God had allowed humanity to build a single, united culture to its own glory, it would have magnified human suffering in a way that we can't imagine. It would have removed the ability of the marginalized and the powerless to wrestle and fight for protection. The suffering of this age would be worse if the power players of this age held all the power because they would use all the power to protect their privilege and to continue to exploit and abuse those without. By dividing the languages, by splintering human culture and putting those cultures in opposition to one another, yes, God created the opportunities for war and racism and suffering, and it's better than it would have been. Had we created a single culture in our image for our glory, because there would have been no check on our ability to accrue and abuse power. So you guys, it was grace. God broke in and splintered human culture as an act of protection and grace to protect those that are most vulnerable, to love those that were suffering. So why is this story important to our text? Why is it important that we understand Babel to understand Pentecost? Because Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. Pentecost is the removal of the curse that God brought at the Tower of Babel. Not a complete reversal, but the beginning of it. The complete curse has been removed and will experience it when the kingdom is fully realized, when there is a restoration of God's shalom to all things. But but we're not there yet. We live in the overlap of the ages. We live in the broken age that is, but we're empowered by the Spirit who is bringing in the age to come. And we taste this, this, this breaking in. And Pentecost shows us in a powerful way how what was done is being undone. First of all, think about this, you guys. We see a confused language at Babel, right? God confused the languages to drive people out from being part of an old humanity that was part of a culture of rebellion. In Pentecost, God gives the gift of languages to to ultimately call people in to be part of a new humanity that is not marked by rebellion, but by Christ's obedience, not marked by our holiness in opposition against God, which isn't holiness, but God's holiness given to us as a gift in Christ. And this ultimately is an invitation into a new relationship and a way to worship God, right? So what we see is at Babel, God was judging mankind's attempt to build a temple to self-glory and, and, and self-promotion. You guys remember the video, the purple space, where God's realm overlapped ours? What, what went into those spaces? Do you remember what they said? 
temples, the place where man could come and meet God. At Babel, mankind was trying to permanently separate the two realms. We will build a temple, but it will be to us and our glory. And God came down to disrupt the plan of self-worship. At Pentecost, God comes down to call us to experience genuine um, renewal and presence of God in a true temple, right? Jesus, of course, was the temple in the flesh, right? He was the place where man and God met in human form because he was perfect man and perfect God. And then he also, not only was the temple, became the chief sacrifice of the temple when, when he sacrificed himself for us. And he died for us. And he took our place as our substitute. He took our sin and our shame so that it could be completely removed from us and we could be made new in him. He was the temple and the sacrifice. As we believe in that and are cleansed by the work of Christ, we are brought into the church, the the body of believers. And that body of believers, you guys, is called in Ephesians 2, the temple of the living God. We are the purple space. We are the overlapping of the ages, not this building, the collection of believers, the church. The Spirit of God comes and inhabits us. The presence of God is given to us as a gift, as as the result of the work of Christ on our behalf. And now as followers of Christ, we are the living temple of God, the church, and the Spirit of God dwells in us, which means the kingdom of God is present on earth in the form of the church. At the very end of the story, when the new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven, the book of Revelation describes the new Jerusalem this way. It says the new Jerusalem is the bride, the lamb, or the bride, the wife of the lamb in Revelation 21.9. What that tells you is that the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, God's presence being manifest back on earth, isn't a city, it's a people. It's us. The church. We are the temple of the living God because God dwells in us. So what that means is that all that crazy stuff in Acts chapter 2 was the christening of the new temple. Hmm. It was was God celebrating that the doors were now open, that that men no longer had to come to a physical space of, of, of temporary meeting. We could move into a permanent relationship through the work of Christ by being brought into the body of Christ, becoming his people indwelt by the Spirit, forgiven by his work. So God judged the self-centered temple and inaugurated the true temple. What that means is this. Finally, at Babel, God splintered human culture to protect the weak and powerless. At Pentecost, God created a new humanity and a new culture to empower and to protect and to give dignity to those who don't have it. To dignify and empower and free us into his glory. We are the temple of the living God. We are the representatives, the ambassadors of a new kingdom. Do you understand the weight of privilege that has been given to you? Do you understand how this informs everything we do? 
from our job to our families to our hobbies to our recreational pursuits to to how we deal with people we don't like, people who don't look like us and act like us and sound like us, to people that are threatening to us, even to people who hate us. We are the temple, the living God, the representatives of the love of Christ being changed by the message even as we share the message. When we understand this, you guys, it allows us to see just how temporary this life is and how small our many miseries are compared to the glory that will be revealed to us and manifest in us. What that means, listen, you guys, listen. I want to wrap up with this. In the same way, the church was sent out into Jerusalem speaking a new language. We have been sent into our culture to speak a new language. If racial reconciliation can't happen in the church, where can it happen? If it doesn't begin with us, where will it begin? If we cannot learn to speak to those who are different from us, if we can't learn to love those who hate us, there's no hope for us. See, here's the thing. They were sent out and they spoke naturally the language of the people who heard, not their own. That means we need to get good at speaking the language of others instead of our own. We, we sit in our position of privilege and demand that people speak to us in our language and relate to us in our privilege and come to us on our grounds and our way. And we get threatened when they don't. We are called to move into the culture speaking a new language, which means we need to spend more time listening than talking. Because we need to learn how to speak other people's language. People that are different from us. People who have different experience from us. People that are suffering in ways we don't understand. We need to listen more than we talk. And we need to learn to allow what they say to inform what we think. We need to not just shut off their experience because it threatens our privilege or our comfort or our self-image, but learn how to enter into it. We need to spend less time speaking at people and more time speaking with people. We need to spend less time talking about people and more time meeting people who are fundamentally different from us, people that are threatening to us, people that maybe have an agenda that is different than ours. We should, of all people, be the ones who are the safe meeting place for the glory of God to meet with people who are created in the image of God, who desperately need the redeeming work of God in Christ. And that doesn't matter if if they're black or white or, or a different race or a different sexual orientation or whatever. We need to learn to not see them as the other, the alien, the threat. We need to see them as people created in the image of God who desperately need the message of the redemptive love of God. We don't change the message, but we change ourselves. Or better yet, the Spirit changes us as we simply move into learning how to love people who are fundamentally different from us. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. It is a great multitude of many nations and many tongues coming together to praise God. So we need to learn to be the grace of God and not the judgment of God. We need to learn to speak words of reconciliation and not alienation. And you need to remember that as you're on Facebook and on Twitter and as we move through our election season and as we move into our neighborhoods and have conversations with people who are fundamentally different from us. God moved into our space 
He didn't become one of us, but he learned to speak our language to invite us into grace. And we are now being sent out by the same spirit of reconciliation to learn how to love and relate to people that are fundamentally different from us, to invite them into the redemptive flow of the work of Christ. I'm going to put some uh, verses up on the screen that will lead us in a time of reflection and um, create some space to allow the Spirit of God just to speak to our hearts. And um, let him shape where he would lead. We're going to share communion after that, our celebration of the fact that as broken as we are, we have a Savior. And thank God we have a Savior who stepped out of his comfort and into our pain. A God who's changing us even as he's working through us. Lord, pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that even though we're more sinful than we know, more broken, more selfish, more bent on our own glory and our own comfort than we dare to admit, you're not offended by our desires to build our own kingdom, to protect our own comfort. Even as we alienate and make enemies out of people that are different from us, that are threatening to us, that challenge us in ways we don't like to be challenged, that make us uncomfortable. Even as we self-protect in our privilege and pride and don't care for the marginalized, the hurt, the suffering, Lord, you love us and you care for us and you model the very thing that you call us to. So, Spirit, I pray this morning you will break our hearts, that we will yearn for your kingdom and come to desire the presence of your shalom and of your peace, that we will learn to speak of your love with people that don't agree with us, that aren't like us, that maybe you're even threatening to us, but to do it from a place of love and not self-protection, of grace and not judgment that we would call people boldly and bravely to believe in Jesus, to see their sin, to be awakened to the kingdom that is breaking in. And even as we, to tell others of this great well of life that we would learn to drink deeply of it. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.